Good morning. morning. Happy uh, Palm Sunday. Right here, baby. (laughs) You don't pay attention, you get a palm. (laughs) Just kidding. I want to, (laughs) I want to actually finish my comments on Zechariah 4. And in a way, I didn't realize this till this morning, that much of what I have to say actually applies to uh, Palm Sunday. And you'll see that as we go along. But let's go back to Zechariah 4. We've been talking about it for, for the past uh, couple of weeks. And this is a, a vision that Zechariah got in order to encourage the remnant that returned after the captivity to build the temple of God. They the foundation stone had been laid, but the work uh, languished. They, for various reasons, fell into basically unbelief, and they cease doing the work of God. So God sends Zechariah and Haggai to prophesy and to encourage them and exhort them to continue the work of God to build his temple. Uh, let's go ahead and read. Through. We've read it before, but let's just read it quickly again. Zechariah 4, verse 1. Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who was wakened out of his sleep. And he said, what do you see? And I said, I'm looking and there's a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top and on the stand seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl, the other at the left. So he answered, And spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of the temple, or the house. His hands also shall finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel, They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. Now, we talked previously about the imagery of the lampstand, uh, referring to, um, in contrast to the original lampstand in the temple, the the Salamic temple, this lampstand had a bowl and pipes and two trees, the olive trees that fed the oil, through the pipes, into the bowl. Uh, And the original lampstand did not have these features because this was a promise of a a fullness of God's spirit being given to God's people in order to energize them and equip them to do the work God called them to do. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to give you more of my Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you a fullness of my Holy Spirit in order that you are able to, to fulfill the work that I have called you to do. Not by human might, not by human power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Amen? By my spirit, the work will get done. 
by my spirit operating in you and through you, the temple will be built. But also in this text, we have Zerubbabel referred to several times, and we have the seven eyes, and I'm going to talk about both of those today. First of all, Zerubbabel, he of course is a type of Jesus Christ as the ruler or king overseeing the work of God's temple. Um, Jesus is, according to the word of God, a king. Amen? Let's just look at a few scriptures. There are so many. But we'll see that his kingship is prophesied, and then we see it's announced at his birth, and then we see that it's fulfilled in in his, uh, really his post-resurrection ministry. But just look at Psalm 2 for a moment. There's so many scriptures that allude to this, but Psalm 2 is one of the most obvious. Psalm 2, verse 1, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. In other words, we don't want to be under the authority of Jehovah or of his anointed one, his king. We want to do our own thing, right? We want to run things our own way. Verse 4, what is God's response? He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. God has a sense of humor. He's laughing as people are rebelling against him because the idea is utter folly. The Lord shall hold them in derision. and He shall speak to them in his wrath and distressed them in his deep displeasure. Yet have I set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Yet, meaning in spite of your opposition, I will set my king. I have set my king on my holy hill. I will declare the decree. Now this is now the anointed one, the Messiah speaking. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And when you read in Acts, what you find that the today of his begottenness is the day of his resurrection, the day he was recognized as the king, and then he was ascended and exalted. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall rule them or break them with a rod of iron, and you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. Amen. Psalm 110. This is a psalm which Jesus himself quoted in his debates with the Pharisees. Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord Jehovah is the word. Jehovah said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Jesus quotes that in the New Testament, uh, applying it to himself. The apostles quoted the book of Acts, applying it to Jesus. Jesus is the king Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is ruling. When Jesus was born, 
this feature of his, his, how shall we say, his vocation as ruler was prominent in the minds of the gospel writers. In Matthew 2, we, we have the account here given of the, the Magi appearing, coming as the star appeared, they came to, to find Jesus. And when they came to Bethlehem, they said in Matthew 2, 2, where is he who was born king, king of the Jews? Where's the king? And so they search the scripture and they say uh, in verse 5, so they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And we, we recall that when, uh, in the account in Luke, the, uh, the, uh, Mary is reminded that Jesus was to ascend to the throne of David and that his kingdom would have no end. No end. It would be universal. And of course, this was fulfilled through the work of Jesus Christ. And in Acts chapter 2, this is prominent in the very first sermon that is given after the Holy Spirit was, was given in its fullness to the church. In Acts chapter 2, <clears throat> we read this in verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that at the fruit of his body he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Amen? Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, meaning the manifestations they were seeing of the Spirit, which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, Jehovah said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Hallelujah. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says this. After he exhorts us to have the mind of Jesus, which was a mind of, of humility and a mind of self-sacrifice, he talks in, in chapter 2, uh, in verse 7, about how Jesus made himself of no reputation, or he emptied himself of his glory and his majesty. He humbled himself. Uh, he became a bondservant. He took on the, the likeness of men. He, be, he, he, became a, uh, he humbled himself even uh, to, not only to death, but even the death of the cross, a criminal's death, a shameful death. He humbled himself as low as he could go. But he says in verse 9, Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth 
and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? This means that Jesus Christ, as, as the God-man, as the, as the reward for his passion, God granted him to sit on, on his throne with him, highly exalted. He now is handed the, the governance of the world as a reward for his suffering and for his humility. So Jesus Christ is now the ruler and the king of the universe. Amen? Now, I know that it's, it's sometimes it's hard to believe that because when you look out at the world, things seem to be chaotic, don't they? You see wars and rumors of wars, and you see famine, and you see people every other weekend in the streets um, rioting and uh, protesting something, and things seem to be chaotic. But the fact of the matter is, everything is under the sovereign control of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the fact that we don't understand how things fit together, well, we should, how could we? <laughs> how could we even imagine that we could understand how different events, in, not only within our own nation, uh, different events around the world, all dovetail together under the governance of Jesus? We, we do not have the ability to understand this. But we do have the revelation in Scripture that Jesus Christ is sovereign, that he is seated next to the Father, and he is now governing the world. And as the ruler and the king, he is above every ruler and he is above every king. And as a ruler, that means he has authority, he has jurisdiction, and he has power. Jesus Christ himself said in Matthew 28, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. This is after his resurrection. All authority has been given to me. So his authority is supreme. He has all authority. Not a little bit of authority. Not some authority. But he says, all authority has been given to me. Jesus is not one God in the pantheon of gods. He's not one ruler in the pantheon of rulers. Jesus isn't contending with Donald Trump for authority. It doesn't work that way. Jesus is over the rulers of the earth. He is over the kings. He is over the judges. He is over all authority because he possesses all authority in heaven and earth. And his jurisdiction is universal. He didn't say have all authority just in heaven, did he? Or I have all authority just on earth, but I have all authority in heaven and earth. And of course, that phrase is comprehensive, which means my authority is universal. It applies everywhere. I have authority in every church. I have authority in every country. I have authority in every uh, judicial setting. I have every all authority in every family government. I have all authority in the family, in the church, and in the state because my authority is universal. There's no corner of the world, there's no little plot of the world where Jesus is not sovereign. Now, as I'm getting older, you know, I've contemplated, you know, what, what's it going to be like when I actually retire? So I have these fantasies that will never come true. You want to hear one? 
the fantasy is I buy a little island. And there's nothing on the island but my house. And so the other day I was looking at pictures of little places where there's little bitty houses on little bitty islands. And they actually exist. Like, man, I want one of those. Nobody can bug me. Nobody can show my door knocking. No, no. Jesus is sovereign over that little bitty island. A little bitty house. As the old saying is, you can run, but you can't hide. <laughs> right? There is no place we can go where God is not there, where Jesus is not there, where his, his jurisdiction, jurisdiction does not extend. Because he said he has authority over all of heaven and all of earth. And in, and in well, we're going to read a couple of scriptures. He's just, man, I could meditate on these all day. Go to Hebrews 1. In Hebrews 1, the author is opening the letter. The whole point of this letter is to show the supremacy of Jesus and the supremacy of the new covenant over the old covenant. And so he opens with comparing Jesus to angels, contrasting, really not comparing, contrasting Jesus. It says, God, who at sundry times and in various places spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days, meaning our days, these are our days, spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. He's exalted, he's seated on the throne next to the Father. Having become so much better than the angels, as he by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God. God is saying to the Son, your throne, O God, you, God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. That oil of gladness that he anointed the son with is the oil that came down on Pentecost. That oil, was Jesus was anointed with the oil of the Holy Spirit, which he then shed upon his people. And, quote, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak you will fold them up, and they shall be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool? Amen? Amen. So the Son is the express image of the Father, 
He purges our sins through his sacrificial work. He is resurrected from the dead. He is then seated at the right hand of the Father. And from that place, he upholds all things by the word of his power and governs all things according to the counsel of God. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says this. He prays for us, you and I, the church, to be enlightened to see this. And we need to see this. He prays that in 18, the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. 118. That you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. In other words, I want you to know that same power that, that brought Jesus out of the grave. I want you to know the same power that ascended Jesus into, into heaven and placed Jesus at the right hand of the Father. That's the power I want you to know. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, verse 20, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And has put all things under his feet. All things. All dominion, all power, all rulers. And you notice at the end of uh, Ephesians, when Paul exhorts us to put on God's armor and to fight the enemy, what does he say? He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. What are we fighting? Verse 12, we are fighting against principalities and powers and rulers and spiritual hosts. In other words, we are fighting against those things that are under Jesus' feet. Let me say it again because you're not hearing it. We are fighting against those powers that are under Jesus' feet. That means you fight from a place of victory. You battle from a place where you are on top in the wrestling match. You're fighting, but you're winning because your opponent is under the feet of Jesus and you are in him. You are in him. And just as his passion is yours, in that his, his atoning blood is yours, and, and you died on that cross, and your sins were paid for that for on that cross, you were resurrected in him, and you were exalted in him, and we're told that our life is hidden in Christ, in God. Therefore, set your mind on heavenly things. So Jesus' history becomes our history. And so we fight in the heavenlies, from a position of authority and power in Christ. You know, we tend to look at things as if Jesus is gone and we're down here struggling to just kind of get through this thing. Well, thank God at least he gave us the Holy Spirit to help. Whew. You know? But when Jesus left and gave the Holy Spirit, you know what he said? After he said, I'm going to send the Spirit, he says, you will not be orphans. I'm going to send you the Spirit. You know what he said? I will come to you. I will. 
McLaren said, we should not think of a Christ who once worked and left the completion to us, but of a Christ who is ever active, although invisible. Jesus is working just as much now, if not more, than when he was on the earth. He is ruling now. He is interceding now. He is battling now. He's not just kind of sitting there saying, come on, guys, get it together. Come on, guys, get focused. Come on, guys, get in the game. Now he's probably thinking that, but he's not passive. He's not waiting for us to do it. He's doing it. He's in, he's, let me tell you, friends, he's doing it with us or without us. And that's the truth. The Lord ultimately will get his work done in the world. The question is, will we partner with him and work with him, or will we not? Jesus is seated not only above every name, but he's far above every name. And I must stress every name. Every power and authority in heaven, every demonic force, Satan, as well as his many minions, the deceiving spirits, the unclean spirits. He is above every earthly power, whether it's president or parliament or Congress or Supreme Court. He has all authority, and he is able to accomplish the work of God in the earth, and he is active in the earth now. He's working right now. Jesus told us in Matthew 16, after Peter confessed that he was a Messiah, he said, upon this rock, meaning not the man, but the faith, the profession of faith, I will build my church. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Meaning, I will build my church and I will be successful. That's what Jesus said. I will be successful. The enemy cannot thwart what I'm doing in the earth. What Jesus begins, Jesus finishes. He did it in creation and he does it in redemption. He is the author meaning the beginner, and he is the finisher of our faith. He is the alpha, the beginning, and he is the omega, the end. And every letter in between. Amen? Therefore, opposition to Jesus is futile. And that's the point of this prophecy in Zechariah. As, he, as the Lord encouraged his people to build and to work, the point was opposition ultimately is futile. Because one, you have the fullness of my spirit, and number two, my ruler will not only lay the foundation stone, he will place the capstone on the finished work. Thirdly, the seven eyes of the Lord, referred to in Zechariah, if you want to go back there quickly. The seven eyes are referred to in, in chapter 3, verse 9. It says, For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. 
Then again in chapter 4, they're referred to uh, in verse 410. They are the eyes of the Lord to scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. The eyes here refer, of course, to the omniscience and the wisdom and the providence of God. His eyes refer to the fact that God knows all things, that he sees all things. Um, The Lord sees, the word tells us, both the evil and the good. God is aware of everything, right? He's aware of everything past. He's aware of everything future, and he's aware of everything present. He's aware not only of what will be, but what could be. He's aware of possibilities. God knows all things. As Psalm says, his understanding is infinite. Infinite. It has no bounds. There's nothing we can tell God that he doesn't know. Right? There's no unforeseen circumstance that will happen that will surprise him. Nothing can throw him off his game. Right? Nothing can happen in the future that's going to discourage him as if he didn't know what was going to happen. Because his understanding is infinite. So the eyes of the Lord refer here to the fact that God is fully aware of the opposition to the work. He sees everything. But he also is overseeing everything. And he will bring it to completion. So this is the watchful eye of providence, if you will, in the world and over the world, but especially his watchful eye of providence over the fate of his people. Now the number seven, as you know, probably, is that this is the number that speaks of perfection. Okay, perfection. So the seven eyes speak of the the perfection and the plentitude of providence. Like that? The perfection and plentitude of providence. You can tweet that one. In other words, that all things are under his oversight and care. Indeed, as Jesus said, not even a sparrow falls to the ground without the Father. So in his wise providence, God orders all events to the completion of his plan, the completion of his work, and the good of his people. This is what Paul is trying to tell us in Romans 8. So let's turn there as we begin to close. Look at Romans 8. This is a well-known passage. because This is one of those verses we like to read and get reassurance from, right? Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to its purpose. But when you read the context here, the all things working together for good doesn't mean God will work all things to your liking. Right? That's often how we kind of read it. God works things the way you like it. You're going to get that raise. You're going to get that job. You're going to get that guy. You're going to get that girl. You're going to get this. You're going to get that. Well, maybe not. Because God working all things for the good of his people means that God is fulfilling. Are you listening? It's important. I'll I'll stop soon. That God is fulfilling, first of all, his plan. Not your plan. His plan. It just so happens his plan ultimately means our best interest. But it doesn't mean along the way we get everything we want. 
because I'm probably not going to get that little house on the little island. <laughs> now, if you want to start a fund, I'll take it, but I'm just saying. The odds are I'm not going to get that. Right? And so it must not be for my good. And when you look at, you look at all the scriptures that surround 828, before 828, Paul's talking about, the verse 18, the sufferings of this present time. The groaning and the futility of creation that, are, that we are groaning because we're, we're in this mortal fallen body and this, this fallen world. Bad stuff, right? But Paul assures us, God is working all things together for good. And then you go on and you read Romans 8, and then you, then you say, well, wait a minute. Toward the end, he, he, it took 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. That's not my plan. <laughs> that is not part of my retirement package. Okay. It's, not, it's not there. I'll never write it in there. But God might write it in there. Right? And so, Romans 8.28, we read that for comfort, which we should, but you have to understand, don't misread it, that God's working all things to your liking, that is not what it says. Doesn't mean God is working all things to give you what you want, that's not what it says. It says God is working all things for your ultimate good, and those things he are, the things he's working are the things of suffering and persecution and distress. Those are the things he's working. Those are the things that mold our character. Those are the things that Paul says work for us a more eternal weight of glory. So God's working through these negative things. He's working positive in us and ultimately for us. But we have to see with the, with the eyes of faith, right? We have to see that the, the outcome of what we're experiencing isn't just in this life. The outcome is in eternity. The eternal weight of glory. So our outward man may perish, but the inward man is renewed day by day, Paul says. Things may go terrible on the outside, but if we walk by faith, we can grow stronger on the inside. As we walk by faith, through the difficult times, through the trials, through the challenges, through the opposition, God works that for our good in eternity. Hearing me? In eternity. And God is overseeing through his wise providence all things. So nothing is out of control. Nothing is random. It doesn't mean you'll understand why things happen. You won't. Of course, if you understood everything, you wouldn't need to walk by faith, would you? So we walk by faith at times not understanding why this difficulty, why this challenge, why this problem, why this opposition. But we understand by faith. We know by faith. Paul says in 8.28, and we know. Well, how do we know that God's working? We know by faith. That's how we know. 
So let me conclude by saying this. The word to Zechariah was a word of, of encouragement and exhortation to do, put your hand to the work that God has called you to do. Build the temple. And this, of course, can be applied to us in terms of building our Christian life, building our family, building our church community, doing God's work in the world, wherever we're called to do it, okay? And we see that each person of the Trinity is engaged in the work of building God's kingdom and God's temple. Each person. The Spirit indwells each and every believer, and the Holy Spirit empowers us and energizes us for the task ahead of us. He's the one that gives us the power for sanctification and holiness. He's the one that gives us the passion and desire and the power for service. It's the Spirit in us. But also the Son is ruling. He's seated, exalted at the throne of God, and He is just as active as the Spirit. As a matter of fact, you could say He is the one who is active in and through the Spirit. And Jesus is working now to build his church. He's working now to build his church. And lastly, the Father, the seven eyes. In his wise providence, the Father oversees the entire governance of the Son and the operation of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Zechariah could say, Who are you, O mountain? Who are you, obstacle? Who are you, opposition? Standing against the, the, the almighty trinity? Who are you? Donald? <laughs> Who are you, Putin? Who are you, Supreme Court? Who are you? That's what God is saying. The Spirit, the Son, the Father, the lamp, Zerubbabel, the eyes. The Almighty Trinity is engaged in fulfilling the work of God on the earth, and God will win. There is no power greater than the power of God. There's no wisdom greater than the wisdom of God. There's no obstacle that God cannot defeat. Thus he says, mountain, you will be made low. Amen? And so Jesus tells his people, do not despise the day of small things, which means do not walk in unbelief. I will provide everything you need for success in your Christian life, in your family, in your church. I will provide everything you need, but you must take hold of it by faith. That's why Jesus said, if we have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, we will say to this mountain, move. It is through faith that we overcome obstacles that we defeat opposition. And there's always opposition. That's what Paul is he's trying to get us to see. 
In Ephesians, we're seated in Christ, we're seated in the heavenlies. It's glorious. Guess what? There's a raging battle going on. And we have to wrestle and fight because there's opposition to God's work. But listen, we labor and we battle in confidence because we know the ultimate outcome. You know, my uncle died on the beaches of Normandy fighting the Nazis. And I'm proud of that. I'm proud of him. My father would have fought, but the, uh, he had a physical condition and he couldn't get in. And I'm proud that he did that. Or we'd all be speaking German right now. We were very close to not winning that war, which would have changed human history. The fact that he didn't come back, the fact that, it, that his corpse rotted on the beaches of Normandy, does that mean that he failed? No. Because the side he was fighting for won. And there'll be casualties in the battle, there's always casualties in a war. Always. But the church of God, the true church of God, is going to win. And we need to labor in light of that. And we need to stop being down-in-the-mouth Christians and negative Christians and unbelieving Christians and that-will-never-happen Christians and I-don't-believe-it-Christians. Because that kind of attitude is self-fulfilling. It is self-fulfilling prophecy because that those expressions of unbelief are recognized by God and God does not reward unbelief. He rewards faith. Faith. The Christian life can be gruelingly hard. Amen? There is fierce opposition. Uh, if you have children at home, it's, it's a lot of work to raise godly children. A lot of work. It's hard to serve the Lord in the church. It's hard to witness. It's hard. The Christian life is not a lazy man's religion. It's a warrior religion. But we fight in confidence because our Lord has already conquered. We fight in confidence because we have the Holy Spirit of God in us. We have the Son of God on our side, and He's on the throne. We have the Father, the Father who's omniscient, watching out for us and caring for us. Now, what else do we need? Amen. Amen. So let us believe the Lord and build the temple. Amen. Stand and pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, you are beyond compare. Lord, as we even utter the words omniscient or providence, we, we understand so little of what it really means. But Lord, we know according to your word, 
that you are working all things to fulfill your plan. And that ultimately means the good of your church. And we thank you for that. We profess that now. We believe you, Lord. And we thank you that your son Jesus is seated at your right hand, that his enemies are being subdued even as we speak. We thank you, Lord, that you are conquering on the earth. The day is coming when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for your precious spirit that dwells in us and amongst us. Lord, remind us daily of your perpetual presence with us, your perpetual power that resides in us. And I pray that we would learn to walk daily by your Spirit. And as we do that, Lord, we will be, will be like that lampstand, shining brightly in the world, in a crooked and perverse nation. Lord, we just thank you for all that you've revealed to us. May we, through your work in us, grasp these truths by faith. And we ask it, Lord, for your glory and for the glory of that precious name, the name of Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.